Last week we began a new series, and uh, more than that, I hope, we began a season of life change. Many of us decided to diligently apply ourselves to the endeavor of becoming better believers. Now, if you weren't here last Sunday, or maybe even if you were, you may still get a twinge of concern over the idea that we can do anything to become better believers. I understand the dangers of legalism. I also hear in my head the thought, Pastor, don't you know we can't do anything to make ourselves better? And that's almost true, except that it isn't quite so absolute, because the fact is that we can do things to make ourselves better with God's help. <laughs> and see, God has already promised His help. If we will only get bo on board with the very thing He wants to do, which is to make us better. We know that God wants to make us more like Jesus, right? Right? So what's the holdup? Hint, it isn't God. That's why I spent a lot of time last week pointing out from our text that we need to stop expecting God to zap us with holiness someday. Do you realize that's what we've been doing, right? I mean, I think a lot of times that's what we're doing. By the way, can I get some light? Oh, I think we're going to turn up the lights for this part. Um, it helps people not fall asleep or less people um, fall asleep. I think we just kind of have this underlying thing that we just expect that someday we'll just, God will just make us holy. And of course, in glorification, He will. But I'm talking about during our time here on this earth. And we need to stop waiting for that, you know, zap job from God and, and instead get involved in becoming holy by partnering with God as He works within us. One thing you won't find in Scripture is the idea that a Christian is incapable of improvement or that improvement comes without our active participation. That is simply not what we see throughout the Bible, nor is it what we see in our text for this series. Rather, what we see is a challenge to apply all diligence. Remember that from last week? Or is the NLT version, make every effort in order to become more like Christ. And so many of us made a commitment last Sunday to get serious about working with God to become the people He has in mind. We put our yes on the table. We said, as the Lord supplies the power, we will apply ourselves to His work within us. Let's read our text for this entire series again. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, 
godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. We talked about the first four verses of this passage last week. Today we'll focus on the first part of verse 5 and the Christ-like character trait called moral excellence. Peter writes, verse 5, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. He says, for this very reason. For what reason? Back up to the verse before, and you'll see that the reason you can become morally excellent is that you have already escaped the corruptive lusts of this world. To escape here is equal to the concept of salvation, of being saved. This is about regeneration, being born again, made right in God's eyes by faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, this is what Christ has done for you already if you have received what he has offered, salvation. Jesus saves those who believe. And he saves us from worldly corruption caused by spiritual ineptitude. As a believer, by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, you have been saved, having escaped the power of sin in this world. You now have the ability to overcome. You and I have received all new character traits in Christ if we will only realize them. The only missing piece might be whether or not we are willing to apply all diligence in actually practicing our new character in Christ. Now, the first facet of this new character can be called moral excellence, but don't miss the phrase, in your faith. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Faith is the conduit, the supply chain, if you will, to your character development. I would encourage you to stop complaining about the supply chain problem in our economy long enough to ask yourself if there is a supply chain problem in your own life. See, the only pathway by which moral excellence may come to fruition in your life is faith. Get this, belief supplies moral excellence, or as the verses before put it, your knowledge of Him is the key to all of this. The power to actually be like Christ comes only through knowing Christ. That is through your ongoing relationship with Him. Faith or belief is what connects you to Christ, allowing God to make you a new creature in Him. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it, in Christ you are a new creation. The old you has been left in the past, in the dust, because you've already become a new person. But again, there is the need for this new nature to actually be practiced. And so again, how is moral excellence supplied? Through faith. And based on the context, what Peter means by faith here is your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I think also in the context we can see that your knowledge, so many things about knowledge here, knowledge, your knowledge of this truth, the fact that in Christ you really can be like Christ, is helpful as well. You need to believe that in Christ you have the ability to achieve moral excellence. 
Primarily, though, verses 2 through 4 make clear that all the power to change comes only from God. And that faith, your faith, is like the switch that opens the flow. What does it say? Through your faith, as you are diligent, moral excellence may be supplied into your life. It's only through faith. So we talked a lot about where the power comes from last week, so let's get into the topic of moral excellence itself. What is this exactly, and what does it mean for our real lives? Moral excellence. You know, like what we see on TV. On YouTube. TikTok. Moral excellence. Like that thing that we've basically been forced to celebrate for the entire month of June. As as if it were um, somehow required for all Americans. Don't get me started. Moral excellence like we see lived out by sports heroes and politicians and corporate bosses. Excuse my sarcasm, but do we even know what moral excellence is anymore? Where can we look to see examples of it? Not many places, I'm afraid. Even many spiritual leaders fail. Some priests and pastors fail. What about us? What about us? What about us? Do we see moral excellence in our church? Well, you're it. You are this church. So what do you think? Are you morally excellent? Keep listening. Let's establish what Peter was getting at with these particular words. Actually, it's just one word in the Greek. According to Strong's, here's the word and the definition. Arete, a virtuous course of thought, feeling and action, virtue, moral goodness. Older translations often use the word virtue here, but that word once meant something more concrete than it does now. I do believe the two words, moral and excellence, actually communicate the author's intent better than virtue at this point. But either way, if you think about it, a person becomes virtuous or morally excellenced by making the right choices. If a person claims to be virtuous or morally excellent but keeps choosing the wrong over the right, there's a word for that too. It's hypocrisy. Morality boils down to choices and actually making the right ones consistently. For this reason, I'm going to try to sum up moral excellence today by talking about three larger areas of life choices. If we make the right choices in these areas, we will exhibit moral excellence. So first of all, moral excellence involves choosing righteousness. Choosing righteousness. To be righteous is to be a person who is right on the inside and therefore chooses rightly. Again, this gets into the flow we see in the first five verses of our text. It is only through our belief, our faith, our knowing Christ that we are made righteous. And it is as we apply ourselves to what has already taken place on the inside that we choose righteousness and live righteously. Now, you might ask how I get the idea of righteousness from arete, which means virtue or moral excellence. For that, you need to understand the bigger picture Peter isn't talking about a generic kind of virtue, but rather the virtue of Christ. And a great word for the virtue of Christ is righteousness. 
In fact, within all of these character traits, we will see clearly the mind and heart of Christ. Ultimately, we are talking about the character of Christ, which we know God desires to form in us. Look back at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. By His own glory and excellence. Notice the last word of that verse, excellence. Whose excellence? The excellence of Christ. Again, this is the Greek word, arete, same word. Moral excellence, virtue. The moral excellence of Christ is to inform and empower our own. And so to choose moral excellence is in, the, in the sense that Peter meant it is to choose to be righteous just as Jesus is righteous. As the Apostle John wrote, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as Christ is is righteous. Maybe it seems obvious that you can't consider yourself to be righteous unless you're actually practicing righteousness. Well, sometimes it almost seems like Christians say exactly the opposite, doesn't it? Don't we sometimes pretend that how we behave doesn't ultimately matter because of grace? That we're already forgiven, right? Past, present, future sins, that's right. So it's a tricky subject. But we need to be very careful. The Apostle John reminds us, if you really are righteous on the inside, forgiven and cleansed by grace through faith in Christ, then you're also going to be living out that righteousness. Jesus taught the same thing on several occasions. But what does it mean to be righteous? Let's look at Webster's definition. Even our now thoroughly secularized dictionary defines righteousness as follows. Acting in accord with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. Now, someone may want to point out that the Bible says all of our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. But remember, the point of that scripture and others like it is that nobody can be good without Jesus. But we must also understand that after salvation, a person can no longer make the claim that righteousness is out of reach. The Bible is very clear that those who are declared righteous by faith in Christ will also learn to live righteously. We are far too fatalistic as believers. We can do better, much better. Remember verse four, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and what? Godliness. By the way, godliness is an exact synonym for righteousness in the Bible. So in other words, if you're a believer, it is now possible for you to live a righteous life. That's what we just read. In as much as you choose to appropriate the power of Christ who lives in you. Therefore, don't believe the lie of our enemy that you can't make the righteous choice. This, it, this reminds me of a, I, I, I really, there's a, there's a, I like a very wide variety of music. Is Rhett here, Rhett, the, probably the most extreme I can get, Rhett likes some pretty ex- extreme music. The, probably the most extreme I can get, Rhett, to, to, to kind of come your way and, and relate is Skillet, okay? That's about as far as I go. I do like, I, I like some of their music. It's pretty hard for some of you uh, to read it soft, but um, I like Skillet, except they had this one album that was just so dead wrong. The whole thing was about how I'm a monster. I'm a monster, the whole thing. And it's like, this is supposed to be from a person who knows Jesus. We're not that anymore, people. We're not that anymore. That was just bonus material. 
His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness or righteousness. Don't believe the lie of our enemy that you cannot make the righteous choice. If you have accepted Christ into your life, you can. As the Apostle Paul said, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You will be able. Listen, you are able to choose righteousness. What do we really mean by this? By choosing righteousness. Remember Webster's de definition, acting in accord with divine or moral law. Divine law, and really any hope for universal moral law, can only be discovered in one place, and that is the Bible, the Word of God. Of all things written, only the Bible has a chance to stand up under scrutiny as a book that both claims to be from God and is also evidence to be from God. And so, of course, this is where we would need to look to find out what acting rightly looks like according to God. Having said that, the disconnect for most Christians isn't in disbelieving the Bible or not believing the Bible is the right place to look, but sometimes it's simply that we don't know what the Bible says. I'm talking about people who've been Christians for 30 years. We still forget. The truth is often we don't want to remember what the Bible actually says about specific rights and wrongs. We'd rather maintain a vague idea. Probably what we learned in Sunday school at the age of nine. So that we can mix in what everybody else is doing, resulting in our own version of morality, which comes a little bit from the Bible and a whole lot from the God-forsaken worldview we're constantly force-fed. Have you noticed lately? It seems that many folks are always saying what the Bible doesn't say. But have you also noticed that often it actually says much more than we remembered? Additionally, even many Christians have become confused by the fact that some biblical laws were time-specific, while some are universal. Yes, a little study, a little common sense, and sometimes are required to tell the difference between a civil or ceremonial law intended only for pre-Christ Israel and a moral law that's universal and timeless. We will need to think a little bit sometimes to understand what God really expects from us today. That does not diminish the fact that as universal moral expectations are completely revealed through Scripture. But see, most people don't read it enough to remember it, much less study enough to understand it. See, if we're dealing with what the Bible actually says instead of some vague notion, then more of us will have to admit that we are often not choosing righteousness, but rather we are choosing disobedience. Most of us would rather assume the Bible doesn't address our personal issues directly. And ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit, just sort of hope that maybe we're good enough for today, maybe we'll be zapped with holiness someday, we might all be surprised at how specific the Bible is on issues of morality. Too often, we conveniently forget. Maybe someone told you the Bible didn't say there's anything wrong with living together before marriage. You may want to check again on that. The fact is that the Bible couldn't be clearer that any sex outside of a lifelong marital commitment between one man and one woman is immoral. I alluded to one improperly celebrated sexual sin earlier, but what about the sexual sin you struggle with? Maybe you think the Bible doesn't address your sin. Wrong answer. 
If it's not between you and your spouse, it's sin. I believe that is clear in the Bible. Often our issues are addressed more directly in Scripture than we would really like to know. By the way, did you know there are more than 10 passages of Scripture forbidding drunkenness? What's another way to refer to drunkenness? Getting high? Why does God say this is wrong? Several reasons. But one reason is that He knows it will likely ruin your life eventually. When you begin to live for the next chemically induced high, your life is on the way to the pit one way or another. If you get high or drunk, you're simply not choosing righteousness, which means you're not living with moral excellence according to the Word of God. Now, obviously, I don't have time to start going through and try to, you know, list out the rights and wrongs of the Bible so that you can map out how to choose righteousness in every situation. That's something you'll need to find out for yourself by actually reading His Word day in and day out. But what if you find something that you didn't know was there? And what if you find out that what you have been doing or thinking is wrong according to God's moral law? What now? That's where it all gets real, isn't it? Will you make the change? Will you choose righteousness? Or will you find a way to write it off and do what you want to do? There's a whole lot of that. Maybe you think there's nothing in the Bible that you don't already know, at least in terms of right and wrong. Okay, let me just read one passage, listing a few things that are clearly not righteous choices before God. And I'm going to try to explain what some of these areas consist of as we go along. This is from Galatians chapter 5. Here we go. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature. Anybody have those? Don't raise your hand. Your lives will produce. We have the desires, but this says when you follow them, right? That's the real question. Your lives will produce these kind of not great results. Is that what it says? Not really good results. Evil results. Sexual immorality. Again, biblically, that's any sexual activity outside of a marriage commitment between a man and a woman. That's just really clear throughout the Bible. Next one, impure thoughts. Basically thinking about doing sinful things. Anyone? Similarly, eagerness for lustful pleasure. Idolatry. Okay, that's putting anything else on the level of God in your life. Participation in demonic activities. The Bible condemns witchcraft, including pagan practices like seances or using things like Ouija boards, trying to cast spells, trying to contact the dead, divination, which is trying to find out the future by getting in touch with the spiritual world. Also, the worship of nature as if it had godlike characteristics. All of these things are expressly forbidden in God's universal moral law. Going on, hostility. Oh, man. Quarreling, <laughs> jealousy, <clears throat> outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions. There's my favorite. The feeling that everyone is wrong except those in your own little group. That has some theological connotations. Envy. <laughs> Both sides. Drunkenness. Wild parties, 
Some of you are like, okay, I'm good on that one. The rest I'm in trouble, but I haven't done any wild parties lately. And other kinds of sins. Let me tell you, as, again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Somebody said, oh, that's pretty rough, isn't it? How are you doing? Did anything stand out? Don't answer out loud. Are you choosing righteousness or something else? Let's make this personal. I meant to have this in your listening guide, but it didn't get in there. But anyway, if you were on a scale of one to five, write a number down in your listening guide there under, under choosing righteousness. How well are you choosing righteousness? Five is excellent. Five is morally excellent. Uh, one is, is not doing well at all. I want you to really try to process this. Where yet? One, one, or, one, two, three, four, or five. Five is morally excellent. Because this makes you think about yourself, right? Not somebody, well, that one guy is a three for sure. Where are you at? I told you it's going to be challenging as a, time, as a, as a church. I'm going to remind you once more that if you know Christ, you have the power and ability. That excuse don't work to live righteously. You can become morally excellent. And, and by the way, the world will notice when that happens. They won't like it. But being liked never was the goal of the church. Did you know that? It's another sermon. Second choice that moral excellence requires is integrity. Choosing integrity. I do believe integrity is at the core of moral excellence. It is impossible to practice Christ-like virtue without integrity. Now, integrity begins with honesty. In his first letter, Peter quotes Psalm 34 when he writes, For the Scriptures say, and here's Psalm 34, If you want a happy life and good days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and keep your lips from telling lies. Honesty is underrated. How many of you know someone who just flat out lies a lot? It's sad, isn't it? How many lies does it take before a person can no longer be trusted to mean what they say? They used to say a, a man or woman is only as good as their word, right? It's really true in many ways. I mean, if you can't trust what they're saying, what good are they? I mean, you can't, you got nothing. How many lies does it take for a person can no longer be trusted? Does it take 10 lies? I don't think so. I'd say it's more like two. If I know somebody's lied to me twice, it becomes a bit hard to believe any unverified thing they say. Trust is easy to break. Very difficult to rebuild. This is a bigger problem than we think. So many lies are told around us that we don't know who to believe anymore. Dishonesty eats away at the moral fabric of our culture. Every time somebody lies, it damages society as a whole. Lying has become so prevalent, both in public life and private life. Most people have trouble with trust, which robs us of relationships. And that, in turn, makes it hard for Christians to have a witness for Jesus. You know what this really winds up being? It winds up meaning you don't have any serious conversations with anybody. If there's no trust, how do you get to the point of talking about Jesus with someone? They don't know if they can trust you. You just, you just keep everything on the down low. It's very Pacific Northwest, by the way. I think even more than some other places I've been. Trust. I've known um, habitual liars who claim to be believers. It's an addiction to some. To others, lies are, are pulled out when convenient. You know, 
Um, it's just a little white lie. It's just, I mean, it'll help people see me the way I really am. Um, helps me get what I deserve anyway. Sometimes it's just easier than telling the truth. When we choose to lie, moral excellence is lost in that moment. I was trying to remember the last time I told a bold-faced lie, and I'm sure there have probably been other times, but the last one, the big one, last, last big one I can remember what was many years ago um, when I was newly married. We were renting a duplex from a man in the church where I was serving as worship pastor. Our landlord was actually a deacon in the church. It was Sunday morning, and as I was about to lead the service, he came over and asked what had happened to the front door of our apartment. Um, you see, the day before, I had kicked in the door, busting through the deadbolt and making a royal mess of the entryway. A day later, a day later, he had already seen the evidence before I could get it fixed. Christy and I, we've been married 31 years now, right? Um, and I'd been married, we'd been married for about four years, four years at that point. We had been fighting about some stupid thing of which I have no memory. She probably remembers. I don't remember. You know how that works. In typical form, I had stormed out of the house to blow off steam for a while. When I came home, she had locked me out. Showing her red-headed stubborn streak that no one else ever sees. She refused to unlock the door, even though I warned her with my most masculine persona. I can't remember if I used a roundhouse or it's kind of a straight forward kick, but I do remember that on the first try, I kicked the door open, shattering the door jam. And, and so after three seconds of triumph, I realized the level of my stupidity. What was I going to do now? Sin begets sin, as they say. So the next day when the good landlord asked me at church what had happened to the door, I immediately made up some ridiculous falsehood as if I were a five-year-old trying to learn how to not tell stories. Literally five minutes later, I was leading the church in songs of worship. That was the most miserable worship service I have ever endured. Right after church, I admitted my sin to the man and proceeded to make amends regarding the broken door. Thankfully, he was gracious. The quickness of my confession helped, but some of the damage could not be undone. I had demonstrated to him that I owned the ugly ability of making up a story to save my skin. It was not my most virtuous moment, and I regret it to this day. The Bible says that lies have a source. Even those so-called little lies we tell are and definitely the big ones come from somewhere. Lies are not our own creations. The Bible says he, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is the father of lies. If he's the father of lies, what does that make us when we lie? I'd say that makes us the mother of lies. Think about that. Satan is active in the formation of lies within us, and by our own choice, we give them birth. Disgusting, isn't it? Maybe you'll remember who the father is the next time you give birth 
to a lie. The Bible calls Satan the deceiver. It says the truth is not in him. When we lie, we display his character. Whose character? Satan's character. But whose character is the believer supposed to display? And whose character does our text from 2 Peter say we are in fact able to display the character of Christ? Choosing moral excellence means choosing integrity. And integrity begins with honesty. Now, integrity also means trustworthiness, dependability, faithfulness, sincerity of heart, and acting with right motives. Integrity is what you do when no one's watching. Integrity is doing the right thing whether you might get caught or not. Integrity is what God wants to find when he examines your heart. King David said, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. God is pleased when we choose integrity. So let's think about a few examples of integrity in action. Let's see. How about choosing not to break copyright laws, not to pirate software, not to share Netflix accounts with people from other households, or cheat on our taxes. Integrity is choosing to let the cashier know when she gives you too much change. Integrity is choosing to take back the item your child accidentally picked up at the convenience store. Integrity is not cheating on your test at school, not suing people out of selfishness, not taking a stroke or two off your golf score after a bad hole. Integrity is choosing to leave your name and phone number on the car you damaged in the parking lot. Should I go on? Or have we stepped on all the toes so far? See, if we're not careful, we begin to justify all kinds of behavior simply by the fact that we're not likely to be caught. Are we justified by thinking something like this? Everybody else is doing it. Or nobody else would do this for me, so why should I do it for them? Integrity is choosing the high moral ground even when others would not. And even though no one will ever know or appreciate your choice, no one other than God, that is, as we tell our children, God always knows, but we remember that ourselves. Let's put a different twist on the idea that God always knows. We usually think of God casting a negative eye on us when he sees us choose poorly. And we could go there, but I think it's more motivational to remember that God notices and is delighted when we choose to go against our old nature and act with integrity instead. The Bible says the Lord hates people with twisted hearts, but he delights in those who have integrity. Can you picture God, this is the God of the universe, mind you, delighting in your choice to live with integrity. I think this means that every time we choose integrity, it makes God's day. He loves to see us make the right choices. Every time you and I choose integrity, it brings a smile to the face of God. He delights in those who have integrity. I don't know about you, but that motivates me. The more chances I have to choose integrity, when these conundrums come up, when these, these situations come up, I have an opportunity, I have a chance to truly worship God, to bring pleasure to God. That motivates me. Rate yourself on integrity. If you feel like you choose integrity most of the time, give yourself a five, uh, or all the time five, most of the time four, that type of thing, all the way down to one. Write a number down, force yourself, at least imagine it if you just are writing a verse. Where are you? Where are you really? Lastly, I think we can further define moral excellence with the idea of choosing courage. Choosing courage. I'm talking about moral courage. I'm talking about taking a stand, not backing down from your convictions and fear. 
I'm talking about not being a spineless, wimpy, wishy-washy Christian. Let's look at a second source for a definition of the Greek word translated in our text as moral excellence. Robertson renders it, arete, moral power, moral energy, vigor of soul. I like that. Moral excellence is not for the faint of heart. You don't practice moral excellence passively, but only with vigor, with energy. After further study, I found that this Greek word was already being used in the writings of Homer, in other words, quite a bit before Christ, and this word was being used to describe what we might call manliness, if I can be so last millennium. Yes, this word is about having a backbone. This arete word translated in our text as moral excellence originally carried with it the idea of honor earned through courageous acts of valor. In all seriousness, womanliness is fine too. You know what I'm saying. Honor earned through courageous acts of valor. That's what it meant way back. What is today again? Father's Day? It's a funny thing about if I ever preach, sometimes, occasionally I'll preach a Father's Day message. Occasionally I'll preach a Mother's Day message. Most, most years not. We just, we roll on through Scripture, but... If I ever do, it's just funny how Mother's Day messages are encouraging, Father's Day messages are challenging. I don't know. It's, um, it's just the way it is. Father's Day, you get a, you get a paragraph here, guys. Um, what if we had more men, and especially more dads, with moral courage? Where would we be culturally, as a nation? More importantly, where would the church be if more of our dads acted with a vigor of soul in the area of morality? <laughs> where would this church be? Frankly, in my life, I've known a lot, of, a lot, a lot more women uh, of moral courage than men. And yet, according to God's Word, men are supposed to be leading in exactly this way. Far, off, far too often, we don't. We don't. What about this inspired human author of our text? What kind of man was Peter? His worst moment notwithstanding, this is a man who took up a sword to defend Jesus at one point. And what was he supposed to do? Jesus told him to bring swords. That's what the Bible says. Apparently, Peter was the only disciple unafraid to actually use the thing against a mob, no less. And only after being scolded for doing so did he deny Christ, which is kind of interesting. Told to put away his sword and back off, Peter what do I do now? He became confused. And in that confusion, he denied knowing Jesus three times. But this was not a man who was afraid. He wasn't afraid. Peter was a man of action, of moral courage, the kind of man Jesus wanted leading and indeed founding his church. Ultimately, Peter led the church right on through his own persecution, torture, and death. He died for his faith in Christ. The first to go to the Gentiles, it was Peter who boldly took the gospel to those who were thought of as dangerous and evil. Peter went anyway, following Jesus to people he would have seen as off-limits and reputation-wrecking, at the least. Moral courage goes against the flow. Peter stood before Ananias and Sapphira, remember, calling them on their lie, and as he watched them fall over dead at the hand of God, he did not waver. 
He continued to lead the church onward and pointed to this couple as an example of what not to do and how not to be. I wonder if two of our members were suddenly struck dead at the altar, would I have the moral courage to declare God's justice served and lead on? I don't think so. Peter had moral courage. He wrote the text we're studying. He was a man of courage and moral excellence himself, and he wrote more than one thing to say about it, had more, more than one thing to say about it. In his first letter, Peter wrote, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies, hang on to that word, excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The word excellencies there in verse 9 is the same Greek word again that we've been discussing, arete meaning virtue or moral excellence. As God's people, according to this passage we just read, we live to proclaim, to proclaim the excellence, to proclaim by word and deed the virtues of Christ, but in order to do this, we will need courage. We will need to say no when others say yes and yes when others say no. It's got to be real. My whole life I've seen this Christian lip service stuff. Frankly, I get really, really sick of it. I know it's occasion I'm not perfect either, but which choice glorifies God? Which choice is morally excellent? Which choice is virtuous in Christ? Isn't it almost always the one that takes courage? The one that goes against the crowd? and risks ridicule or worse. The teenage boy says no to the beer. All of his friends are drinking. They make fun of him, but instead of backing down, he simply stares into their eyes with confidence and says, my decision is final. The teenage girl raises her hand in health class after everyone else has said abortion should be the woman's choice, and she says, I disagree. I think the child should be protected. By the way, Christ-like virtue almost always flies in the face of worldly virtue. You've heard of virtue signaling? They won't like the signals of our virtue if it's in Christ. <laughs> Takes courage. The middle-aged man buys a used car. A seller offers to write in the sale amount as $100, though he actually paid $5,000, kindly offering to save the buyer some money on taxes. He's just trying to help. But the man says, no, thank you. Please mark down the full price. The senior-aged woman notices that one of the young ladies in the church is not behaving in a way that is godly. Doing her best to be kind and respectful, she actually sits down with this younger lady and explains what the Bible says about the issue. That's moral courage, folks. And moral courage endures the fallout when someone else is offended. Attempting to make peace without compromising principle. Friends, we need moral courage in the church. Of course, there are also those who are all too morally courageous. That's another problem. There are those who find fault and are more than willing to tear others down for the sake of their own ego. There are those who are disrespectful and unloving. 
that too is another sermon. But we do need Christ-like moral courage in the church. Nathan, the prophet, had moral courage. He's the one who confronted powerful King David about his sin with Bathsheba. Wisely, Nathan didn't hit David head on. He did not come with finger-pointing accusation, calling David names or shouting him down in public. In spite of David's gross immorality, Nathan simply told him a story, a very poignant story about a man who had abused his power. And the point was well received by David. The result was repentance on his part. Morally courageous actions must always include an ample amount of wisdom. Listen, the point is not to be courageous. It's not the point just to be courageous. But it's to be morally excellent even when courage is required. Heaven knows we don't need any more courageous legalists or judgmental activists in the church. We don't need any more misguided warriors shouting down their neighbors over politics. What we do need more of, though, is people of Christ-like moral courage. When's the last time you had the courage to make a moral decision that went against the flow of cultural pressure? When's the last time you carefully helped a Christian brother or sister make a moral decision of the same kind? If we're to be people of moral excellence, we will need to choose righteousness, integrity, and courage. These are the foundational pillars of virtue. Righteousness, integrity, and courage. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, a true believer and follower of Christ, you should apply all diligence through the promised supernatural ability that you have in Him to live with moral excellence. Our lives should shine in a way that stands out in stark contrast to the unsaved world. How are you doing? But that's not quite all. Let's look at verse 5 once more, and especially the last word. It says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. There's a progression here, obviously. With moral excellence comes knowledge. But what kind of knowledge? This is unquestionably a reference to the knowledge of God. In context, the word refers to our coming to know Jesus better. Peter has already made this point, so he doesn't further qualify it here. But look back in our text for a moment. The progression starts in verse 2, where he makes clear that the is audience are those who have the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then in verse 3, he says that everything they need for life and godliness comes through what? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us. So when he mentions knowledge again in verse 5, he's throwing back to the fact that moral excellence is dependent upon our personal knowledge of Christ. And he's also saying that our knowledge of Christ grows as we live out moral excellence. In other words, knowing Jesus better allows us to be better believers and living better as believers allows us to know Jesus better still. Let me say that again. Knowing Jesus better leads to moral excellence. We see that in the progression. And living a life of moral excellence leads to knowing Jesus better still. In your moral excellence, knowledge. It's like a sandwich. The knowledge of Christ is the bread. Moral excellence is the meat and the cheese. It's huge. This is the brilliance of God's purpose and design for you. Your relationship with Jesus allows you to change. And as you make every effort, allowing yourself to, uh, applying yourself to his work with all diligence, you become more like him. But the icing on the cake is that the more you become like Him, the better you can know Him. 
Folks, that's what I call a positive cycle. We want to become better believers, but the beginning and the end of it all is knowing Jesus better, the knowledge of Christ. So, are you in? Can we do this together? Remember, this is, this is not only a series of sermons, but hopefully a time, a season, when many of us are diligently pursuing Christ-likeness as we pursue Christ. Many of you signed on the dotted line last week to make every effort. I'd ask you to spend some time this week reflecting on how you can be more diligent, specifically in the area of moral, moral excellence. Take your notes with you. Use them in prayer. I hope to see you next Sunday as we continue to let God make us more and more like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, unless I miss my guess, I'm sure there's some conviction in the room right now from believers who know that there have been areas where we have not been morally excellent. In one sense, we're not going to get there by trying harder, but in another sense, we're not going to get there if we don't try hard. I believe that's what's here in this text. The source and the power is you. You are the one that actually does it. But what's the missing ingredient that we don't get there? So commitment this morning, commitment time. I hope that someone right now in this moment will just commit to you, okay, it's time to make some changes. I want to take some steps toward moral excellence. Christ-like Christ-like virtue. I want to become more like Jesus, and not in some vague way, but in real ways that actually mean I do things differently when I have different thoughts. God, change our hearts, change our lives. Let us learn to walk in purity and in holiness. We surrender to the work that you want to do in our lives and in this church. And ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.